Just give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen is a fresh talk radio approach promoting happiness from the inside out. Happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. Each week, Lisa shines her light on well-being and global human flourishing by presenting a diverse and proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who have devoted their lives to creating a better world in which to live. As a filmmaker, positive psychology coach, author, professor, and change agent specializing in the field of happiness, Lisa Cybers Kamen is widely recognized as an expert in the field. On the show, she also focuses on military families and service personnel returning with PTSD, traumatic brain injury and other post-deployment civilian life reintegration issues. So, let's spend some time getting to the heart of the matter on Harvesting Happiness on toginet.com. And now, here's your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Good afternoon and good evening wherever you are. Welcome to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, where we explore the very serious business of happiness, sustainable well-being, and human flourishing. We are not talking about that annoying yellow smiley face. No, no, no. We're talking about something much deeper and critical to the success of humanity. Authentic happiness is not selfish, egotistical, or narcissistic. In fact, it is essential in order for humankind to thrive. Sustainable happiness is important because it not only elevates our own well-being locally, but also contributes to collective global flourishing. The achievement of a happy life is not only positively good for us, it is constructively good for those around us. In short, happiness matters. Happiness comes from the heart, and this show is all about the heart. Today's focus is expansive methodologies in addiction recovery. And this is an area that is very near and dear to my heart because I spend a great deal of my time in the addiction recovery arena as an applied positive psychology coach where I work with men and women who are challenged by addiction every day. And one of the things that I've observed in my course of working in this demographic is that there is not one single way that helps people heal. That healing is a very dynamic process. It comes in its own time and often in very different ways than um, a, a straightforward uh, medical process. And my first guess is doing just that. Noah Levine started his journey of recovering from addiction through the practice of Buddhism in 1988. At the time, he was sitting in a jail cell, so helpless and demoralized that he found the willingness to try his father's, quote, and I'm doing the air quotes as I say this, hippie meditation bullshit, end quote. Much to his surprise and great relief, Noah found in Buddhist meditation a sense of well-being that nothing else ever provided. Noah was eventually trained and empowered to teach by Jack Kornfeld, and we'll get into his work in the course of our discussion because he is really a legend in this, in this area. Noah went on to create Against the Stream Buddhist Meditation Society and now offers the Refuge Recovery Program. Good morning, Noah. Thanks for being with us. Good morning. Happy to be here. Oh, really happy to have you. Let's let's talk a little bit about your own journey and where it took you and how you arrived where you are today. Yeah, sure. I'm happy to. I'm I'm one of the people who feels pretty strongly that uh, in the beginning, drugs and alcohol probably saved my life. I was um, suicidal and uh, kind of despondent as a child, and contemplated suicide really regularly. And uh, when I started drinking and using drugs, it um, actually gave me the relief from the pain and confusion of my childhood and um, was the solution, you know, self-medicating solution for some time. It didn't last long, though. In my teen years, I got strung out on cocaine, crack cocaine, and um, started injecting heroin and was drinking alcoholically for you know just a just a few years 
but enough um, pain and suffering and consequences. I was somebody who, you know, committed a lot of crimes and was in and out of uh, institutions. And uh, I bottomed out really young at 17 years old in 1988. I was finished and um, willing to, to seek help and to start looking for a way to heal and recover. And what did that help look like? You were in jail and you were, were you detoxing in jail? Yeah, I was absolutely kicking and detoxing and I had um, a suicide attempt while I was in jail and, and ended up in a um, observation cell, a kind of padded room and had the first, you know, the first piece was just the, my internal realization of taking responsibility for why I was there. Uh, my first half of my life, I had blamed everybody else and um, yes. and felt like a real victim. And then at that point, I just realized that I couldn't blame anybody else and that nobody was forcing me to do drugs or commit crimes or anything else, and that it was really my choices, you know, the way that I was reacting to my pain. And with that realization, um, you know, I had a phone call from my father who said, uh, maybe you want to try meditating. And my father's a meditation teacher, and I grew up around, you know, it, but I had really rejected it um, and not really understood what it was about. But as I began to meditate, I had a very simple but powerful experience and realization I was given mindfulness meditation instructions, just told to pay attention to my breath. Yes. And, and as I paid attention to my breath, it became clear that that was a momentary relief from what my thinking mind was doing. All of the fear of the future and regret of the past was temporarily suspended. And so I realized that I don't have to obey my own mind. <laughs> I love that. You know, don't believe everything you think kind of thing. Absolutely. Uh, this is a very compelling story because it is one that unfortunately or fortunately, depending upon how you view it, repeats itself often in addiction recovery that um, that the, the that drugs were a gift and a haven, a place to uh, make the pain temporarily go away and then Eventually, there is the realization that the needless suffering um, is optional, and then making the conscious decision to do something about it. Yeah. And these are the gifts of your work, which are both simple and complicated at the same time. When you tell somebody, I'm going to teach you to meditate or teach you the tools for being mindful, that's just the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, it is a um, it's a process, and uh, Buddhism, unlike the twelve steps, isn't such a it's not such a linear process. You know, the twelve step recovery model is like you know do one, then do two, then do three. You know, and it's it's pretty linear. Um, in Buddhism, there's not such a linear path. Uh, the the refuge recovery um, process is based on the four noble truths and the eightfold path. So there is some level of first you look at the the, the first truth, which is about uh, the suffering in our lives and the suffering of addiction. And then you look at the second truth and the um, cause of addiction being the repetitive craving, really the survival instinct of human beings to crave for pleasure and cling to a pleasure and to hate pain. And then the third truth is the promise, which is that recovery or awakening is, is possible, healing Happiness, for you know, happiness is possible if you do the fourth truth, which is follow the Eightfold Path. But the Eightfold Path is not a linear um, progression, but it's eight areas of life that we have to cultivate and train and, and pay attention to really simultaneously. And the Eightfold Path, I would dare say, is one that is bidirectional and by that, I mean that we do it for ourselves when we agree to follow it, but that the byproduct is that it also serves the greater good. Absolutely. And I think that, 
That that's certainly true for Buddhism, and and I think and hope that it's actually true for all genuine transformative paths. That there's the personal part of our own happiness and freedom and recovery, and then there's the altruistic part of um, being of service and creating a positive change in the world. When we speak of altruism, the the very nature of altruism is that we we do it for the uh, ability to do it, for the gift of being able to perform acts altruistically, but yet the uh, return is quite selfish. You know, the joy, the satisfaction, the pride that we receive from living a life in this way serves us personally in the highest order. Yeah, but then the the selfish, I, I agree with you mostly, but I think that the um, the sense of self um, starts to dissolve a bit as we awaken more and more, and uh, really the interconnection with all um, becomes more and more clear. So that rather than just being uh, happy about our own direct experience, we become happy about others' experiences, successes, and more compassionate towards not only our own pain but the pain of others. And the division of self and other starts to dissolve a bit, and it really becomes, the way I think of altruism is for all living beings, including ourself, in that web of, of interconnected existence, but not separate from it. Mm, beautifully said. We are going to go to a break, and when we come back, I'd like to delve more into the process of the Refuge Recovery Program, a little bit deeper. And also mention that this sense of the higher good or, or the, the greater good and the greater purpose or the higher purpose that um, is revealed when we consciously make a choice to live in this way, it, 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 it almost is like a dissolvent of the barriers of the anger, the resentment, the addiction or the need to hold on to a position in one's life, which is where we get stuck and where the suffering occurs. We are going to break and to learn more about Noah Levine and his work with Refuge Recovery Program, you can visit www.refugerecovery.org and there are Twitter, there is a Twitter handle and an FB handle that we don't exactly know what it is, but we think it's Refuge Recovery, but you can also just um, Google Noah Levine, and let me spell his last name. It's L-E-V-I-N-E. You're listening to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress-Kamen, where we are exploring today expansive methodologies of addiction recovery. From the beginning, I wanted to make a difference. We know that life is tough and that happiness can and does live along with adversity. We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen on toginet.com. Like us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and on Twitter at HH Talk Radio. Lisa returns with more of Harvesting Happiness following this short break. Happiness is an inside job. Wear the message on t-shirts, baseball caps, sterling silver designer jewelry, and more. Please visit our online boutique at www.harvestinghappiness.com. Are you or do you know a returning U.S. military man or woman in need of restoring joy in their lives? Did you know that our nonprofit, Harvesting Happiness for Heroes, offers stigma-free combat trauma and post-deployment reintegration programming? Check us out at www.hh4heroes.org. That's HH, the number four, and heroes.org. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Lisa Cypress Kamen has made her first ebook, Got Happiness Now? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, available at no cost to everyone. Unwrap your complimentary copy now by visiting www.harvestinghappinesstalkradio.com.
Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen on Toginet, the show dedicated to promoting happiness because happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. So let's get back to it. It's Harvesting Happiness on Toginet.com. And now back to your host, Lisa Cypress Kamen. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download this podcast on iTunes. Why? Because it's kind, it's free, it's legal, it's available 24-7, and it will educate you in expansive methodologies of addiction recovery. We're continuing our conversation with Noah Levine, who has just come out with a new book, Refuge Recovery, A Buddhist Path to Recovering from Addiction. And Noah, let's talk a little bit about the process that you would take a reader through or somebody that you were working with in a live setting. So Refuge Recovery is a, a full program for recovering from addiction, and the book lays out the whole program. It's the Four Truths and the Eightfold Path of Recovery. There are Refuge Recovery meetings here in Los Angeles. There's five a week, and in other places, New York, San Francisco, Portland, people have started Refuge Recovery meetings, and Refuge Recovery is meant to be practiced in community and a kind of peer-led addiction recovery community. And the book just came out last week, and we're encouraging people, if they are inspired by this approach, to start a meeting. We'll post it on our website, and that this um, Buddhist recovery program will grow organically as people become interested and involved in it. I could read you a piece from the introduction to the book. I'll give you a sense. Oh, love that. Refuge recovery is a practice, a process, a set of tools, a treatment, and a path to healing addiction and the suffering caused by addiction. The main inspiration and guiding philosophy for the Refuge Recovery Program are the teachings of Siddhartha Gautama, Sid, a man who lived in India 2,500 years ago. Sid was a radical psychologist and a spiritual revolutionary. Through his own efforts and practices, he came to understand why human beings experience and cause so much suffering. He referred to the root cause of suffering as an uncontrollable thirst or repetitive craving. This thirst tends to arise in relation to pleasure, but it also may arise as craving for unpleasant experiences to go away or as an addiction to people, places, things, or experiences. This is the same thirst of the alcoholic, the same craving as the addict, and the same attachment as the codependent. Eventually, Sid came to understand and experience a way of living that ended all forms of suffering. He did this through a practice and process that includes meditation, wise actions, and compassion. After freeing himself from the suffering caused by craving, he spent the rest of his life teaching others how to live a life of well-being and freedom a life free from suffering. Sid became known as the Buddha, and his teachings became known as Buddhism. The Refuge Recovery Program has adapted the core teachings of the Buddha as a treatment of addiction. Buddhism recognizes a non-theistic approach to spiritual practice. The Refuge Recovery Program does not ask anyone to believe anything, only to trust the process and to do the hard work of recovery. This book contains a systematic approach to treating and recovering from all forms of addiction. Using the traditional formulation, the program of recovery consists of the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. When sincerely practiced, the program will ensure a full recovery from addiction and a long, lifelong sense of well-being and happiness. I'll leave it there. Mm, I could go on said. and on, but that's probably enough. Oh, I, I think that that uh, more than gives the flavor of the Refuge Recovery Program uh, and the work that you do. I want to just check in about your uh, training with Jack Kornfeld because you were a young man when you had this um, revelatory moment that maybe there is something to this uh, meditation stuff. Absolutely. I was 17 years old when I started meditating. 
And the first couple of years of my meditation practice, I was still confused about the nature of happiness and recovery. I thought that if I just stopped using drugs, I'd be happy. I thought that if I got the material things that I wanted, I'd be happy. And I found myself a couple of years later uh, out of jail in my own apartment with my own car, my own motorcycle, a, a beautiful girlfriend in a relationship with all of the stuff that I thought would make me happy. And I was still quite miserable. I was still stuck in really negative thinking and uh, unethical behavior. It was at that point at 19 years old that I realized that meditation was the only thing that had ever really worked for me. And I um, asked my father, you know, I, want, I said, I want, to do, I want to be more serious about this. And he said, go to a meditation retreat. And I went to my first meditation retreat with Jack Cornfield in 1990. And... I had a powerful experience at that retreat. I mean, I uh, part of it I hated, and all I saw was a bunch of adults and you know a bunch of sort of hippie generation people who were not my people. But the practice itself just really spoke to my heart, and I began to understand that um, the happiness that I was looking for was never going to come from outside of myself, and that it was completely an inside job. And I continued to study with Jack Cornfield and do retreats with him. And I went from the three-day retreat to the five-day retreat to the 10-day retreat and did a whole bunch of 10-day retreats and then started doing month-long retreats and did a three-month-long retreat and just really committed to deep um, meditative practice and training. And about 10 or 12 years into my practice, Jack asked if he could train me as a teacher. And I'd already started to teach a little bit. I started to go back into the juvenile hall where I had um, started meditating myself and offering mindfulness classes to the kids there, the inmates. And, um, and I was happy when Jack asked me to start the empowerment process. And um, our relationship continues. Now we teach regularly together. Wow. That's that's phenomenal. Yes, and, and for those of our listeners who don't know who Jack Cornfield is, he really is one of the premier contemporary mindfulness teachers in the world. Absolutely. He really founded, um, you know, kind of modern American Buddhism, the whole insight movement and uh, a lot of the mindfulness-based uh, teachings that are now being secularized into psychology or uh, medicine really um, come from a foundation of Jack and some of his colleagues bringing Buddhism back to the West from their time in the 60s in, in Asia. And it is powerful and it, and it works. Uh, I myself have been a meditator for uh, many years. I use it, as I say, in my own practice and my own work with recovery and also with trauma. I work quite a bit with veterans who are returning from war who really uh, are challenged with a lot of trauma healing that needs to happen. And uh, many times there is tremendous relief and transformation found in the meditation process, in the, in the process of the meditation and then how it extends out in the world to being more awake and mindful of life, not just when one goes into the meditation state. Absolutely. It becomes our whole life. It becomes uh, bringing awareness and kindness and compassion and appreciation into every uh, relationship and every conversation and every activity of life. The formal training uh, is very important to train our hearts and our minds to break our addiction to pleasure and break our, uh, you know, resistance to, to pain, the, the futile attempts to create a life without pain, and to accept that, that pain is part of life and that true happiness comes from relating to pain wisely, not from escaping it. I love what you just said. Can you repeat that? I think that this is really a key thing, that there's a, a delusion that I think just about everybody has. I think we're born with it because of our survival instinct to want a pleasant experience. We need pleasure in order to survive. We need to avoid pain in order to survive ultimately. But then we start to confuse pleasure with happiness. But we have this body, this nervous system, this, this psyche and heart that are going to experience so much unpleasantness, just the very nature of life, 
there's going to be pain. It's unavoidable. You're going to stub your toe. You're going to have the pain of loss and of impermanence. Things are going to change. And most of the time, people suffer about change and suffer about loss and suffer about pain. True happiness is being able to be at ease, being able to be content, even when things aren't going your way. Breaking our addiction to needing our experience to be pleasant all of the time and gaining more, what in Buddhism we call equanimity, with loss and uh, criticism and pain and, and failure, ultimately, being happy in the midst of difficulties. I love what you just said about being happy in the midst of difficulty because I think this, th- therein lies the opportunity with this work and with this healing process is to come to know on a on a visceral level not just the intellect but you know in one's heart in one's body that there is joy available uh residing alongside the adversity that there are the the blessings of adversity the opportunities for transcendence for transformation that come with the suffering and these huge life challenges which none of us can avoid. I mean, the the destination is predetermined. You know what I mean? We come to go, and what happens in the middle is is the journey, is the opportunity. Absolutely. I mean, I love the name of your show, The Harvesting Happiness. It's one of the ways that I often talk about it, that actually everything that we need for happiness does reside within us. It's not something that we have to go out and create. And meditation and, you know, the Buddhist path especially um, directs us in a way to uncover it, to, to harvest what is there, the compassion of the heart, the wisdom of the heart. And um, by training the mind, we're able to uh, clear away the weeds that are, you know, kind of choking up the, the, uh, you know, the garden or, or whatever the analogy is, so that we can actually get closer to the truth. And, and it mm. is the truth that sets us free. But it's not a truth that we can think our way to. It's not a truth that we can read our way to or even talk our way to, you know, in meetings. But it's a truth that has to be directly experienced through a disciplined spiritual practice, an internal introspective uncovering in order to harvest. Beautifully said. My guest today is Noah Levine, and his book is Refuge Recovery a Buddhist path to recovering from addiction. To learn more about Noah and his incredible work, please visit www.refugerecovery.org. You can check him out um, on Google and find out where he lives in the Twittersphere and the F- uh, Facebook land. But his other websites, I'll just make quick mention, are againstthestream.org and dharmapunks.com. Noah, you've been a delight. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you from the fullness of my heart for being with us and exploring expansive methodologies of addiction recovery. Wonderful. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. Pleasure. We know that life is tough and that happiness can and does live along with adversity. We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen on toginet.com. Like us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and on Twitter at HH Talk Radio. Lisa returns with more of Harvesting Happiness following this short break. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Lisa Cypress came and has made her first ebook, Got Happiness Now? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life. Available at no cost to everyone. Unwrap your complimentary copy now by visiting www.harvestinghappinesstalkradio.com. Like what you hear on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio? Subscribe to us on iTunes and get your weekly dose of joy downloaded free and easily to your computer or portable device. That's Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio on iTunes. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen on Toginet, the show dedicated to promoting happiness because happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. So let's get back to it. It's Harvesting Happiness on Toginet.com. And now back to your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. 
welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. Today we are broadening the ideas of addiction. And many of you are addicted. You might find that shocking. But I've been reflecting quite a bit on the concept of putting away my portable electronics, even for a few minutes. And sometimes when I'm standing in line, and I'm sure you've experienced the same thing, I can't help but reach into my purse and pull out my phone and check, you know, did someone text me? Did someone email me? Does someone want me that I'm unaware of that didn't want me a minute ago? And it's, it's, it's funny. It's true. It's relevant. And it's happening to all of us. And my next guest writes about things like this. Alex Su Jung Kim Pong writes about people, technology, and the worlds they make. He has spent more than 20 years exploring this relationship, first as a historian of science and technology, and as a futurist and technology forecaster. Alex received his PhD in the history of science from the University of Pennsylvania. He is a senior consultant at Strategic Business Insights in Menlo Park, California, which is a consulting and research firm. He also recently held academic appointments at Stanford University, the University of California at Berkeley, and Oxford University's Said Business School. Alex began his latest book, The Distraction Addiction, published in 2013, while serving as a visiting fellow in the Socio-Digital Systems Group at Microsoft Research Cambridge. Welcome, Alex. I am so eager to jump in on this because this is a phenomenon that I'm experiencing and I'm witnessing both in myself and my world. Oh, absolutely. As- and and, and you, are, you are by no means the only one, as you've seen. <laughs> It's so true. And what's interesting is I was sharing with you prior to coming on the air that I work quite a bit in addiction recovery. And I have a lot of young men and women that uh, come to me for group facilitation and counseling, and they cannot stay off their phones. Mm-hmm. And at first I thought, oh, my God, they're so disrespectful. And then I realized there's something more to this. And yes, that's the- what you're here to tell us about. Absolutely. I mean, I think that the you know there we often, I think, underestimate sort of both the amount of time that we spend engaging with our devices and just how profound um, our relationships with our smartphones and social media can be. You know, and I think there were sort of recent studies suggest that people, especially younger people, um, may have, you know, between 50 and 150 interactions with their phones every day. You know, checking Twitter, checking their email, you know, answering calls or even, uh, and, and so forth. And, you know, it provides you know, both a sense of, you know, sort of validation. There is a, you know, there absolutely is a social dimension to it. You want to see what other people are doing and you get a kind of social reinforcement for that behavior. But there is also at a sort of neurological level or a neurochemical level, um, you know, sort of the kind of, kind of, of reinforcement that um, bears no small resemblance to um, the kind of, you know, sort of brain chemical hit that you get when you are gambling or that you get from some kinds of drugs. So there is this, you know, there is, there is a way in which you can, uh, you can talk about our relationships with technology sometimes taking on the quality of an addiction, just like you know, the sorts of addictions with which we are sort of more familiar. You know, the problem, of course, is that um, being addicted to technology is a bit like being addicted to food. Um, it is really difficult to just go completely cold turkey for the rest of your life. You know, furthermore, there are plenty of good things that you can get from it. And so I think that the challenge is lear- is learning how you know to to sort of get the upper hand back to you know to learn how to use these technologies in ways that enhance your life that make you more mindful and more focused rather than encourage you to operate in a more distracted way or feel perpetually mentally fractured. Well, you know, this is this is a great example of um, what you're saying. I'm in a group with a bunch of young people. We mm-hmm. are talking about self mastery, 
the, right. the idea was what happens to you on the weekends in the absence of a recovery programming structure versus mm-hmm. during the week, not, you know, Monday through Friday when you're pretty heavily programmed. What happens to your moods? What happens to your uh, ability to be self-motivated? What happens to your use of technology? And all the while, you know, a good portion of the clients were texting. And so I, I finally said, you know, I'm not taking this personally. I'm actually really curious what's going on. And the response was overwhelming that, that it was helping them to relax and focus on my voice. Mm-hmm. Sure. You know, and I think that there were or a couple a couple things that I noticed there. One is that um, there are studies of multitaskers, you know, of people who constantly are, are, try, are juggling um, several different activities. And one of the amazing findings is that people who are heavy multitaskers all think they're really good at it, but in fact, they're not. There's a kind of self-defending quality to multitasking. And you get the kind of feeling of mastery even as your actual performance on even relatively simple or of relatively simple things sort of goes or of uh, declines. The other thing, of course, is that humans for thousands of years, and I think probably ever since we became human, have struggled with the challenge of uh, or of what to do, sort of how to how to face boredom or you know existential dread or or uh, you know or, or or other things and this and you know the smartphones and social media provide an incredibly accessible easy mindless kind of way to sort of fill those gaps and so you know i think that sort of between the the sort of the appeal to mindlessness and the reinforcement of things like our sensibilities around multitasking, um, you end up in a state where it's really very, very easy to fall into that kind of sort of that that kind of relationship with technology, that kind of mental state. And you know, you really have to take notice of it and sort of work to correct it. The good news is it's it is entirely within everyone's ability to do that. So you know, it just requires being mindful about it and learning how to practice. And let's talk about that in your yeah. book, the distraction addiction. You talk about the concept of contemplative computing. I love mm-hmm. that. Well, thanks. No, it, you know, it's got it's it, and the big idea there is that it, it is possible to learn how to use information technologies. The very same information technologies that you know may that may distract you today to help you be more focused and mindful tomorrow. And you know, we often or if we often talk about these technologies as if either. You know, our relationships with them are kind of hardwired that the sort of dopamine hit that you get from a like on Facebook or a repost on Twitter is something that sort of that we can't overcome. You know, we have to obey our brain chemistry um, or that, you know, just like people complained about the effects of the printing press 500 years ago. So, too, were people today who are complaining about social media just you know, sort of backward dinosaurs who were just, you know, and they don't really, you know, sort of get the internet. And I think that the, or of you know, what contemplative computing tells us is that our relationships with these technologies are not hardwired. They're not sort of, deter, sort of, they're not determinative. We have a lot of choice about how we can use them and we can make all kinds of choices to use them better. So, you know, by paying attention to the to the effect that they have on us, to why we, you know, even simple things like why we're choosing to pull out our phones and look at them when we're in a line or when we're, you know, or on the bus and thinking about where that comes from, how we sort of, what alternatives we have, what other choices we have about how we can use these devices. Um, by becoming more mindful about our technology use, we can become more mindful while using the technology. 
And and how would one do that? In other words, when I'm pulling out my phone in the grocery line or, uh, you know, waiting to go through security at the airport, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm really just um, soothing myself. I'm dealing with my distress, you know, tolerance. I'm not mm-hmm. very tolerant of waiting in this line. Um, I'm delaying my gratification because I know I'm going to get to the other side and be able to go get a nice coffee at Starbucks. Right. You know, there are a whole lots of things that are happening. And so when you're suggesting that we can take a mindful approach, is it meaning that we engage with these devices differently, that we maybe are listening to a meditation or researching something? What exactly do you mean as, you know, as part of the mindful practice? Sure. Well, part of it, you know, is taking notice of your own interior state when you're sort of, you know, when you, when you have the impulse to pull out the phone. Part of it also is learning to use the, learning to use these in different ways or sort of tweaking them so that they are less intrusive or maybe a little bit more inaccessible. So a good example of, of, changing your changing your smartphone so that it is less intrusive is um, creating what are called whitelists you know which means that um, only the people who really matter in your lives get or of uh, real sort of get noticeable impossible to ignore ringtones you know the way that phones normal the cell phones normally work is that they are kind of like the amplifiers in this is spinal tap um, turned up to 11, right? You know, sort of every tweet, every new Facebook post, um, every phone call, voicemail, all are treated equivalently, all are equally urgent and demand your attention right now. Well, if you lived your ordinary life that way, um, you wouldn't last very long. We all make choices all the time in social situations, in class, um, while we're driving, about what matters most to us, what we need to pay attention to. So the first thing you can do with your phone is apply those kinds of uh, – apply the rules of ordinary life to the way your phone interacts with you and say, you know, there are a small number of people who deserve my attention no matter what. And those people get one ringtone. In my case, it's the opening bars of Derek and the Dominoes song, Layla, right, which is a song, you know, I've heard this a million times, but every time I hear it, I'm going to notice it. And then the rest of, and that's family, kids' school, a couple other people, the rest of the world gets um, a piece of ambient music by Brian Eno. And I'm likely to notice that, but I'm, but it's much easier to make a choice about whether or not I'm going to answer the phone, whether I'll let it go to voicemail. Um, so, you know, that's one example of a pretty simple accessible design tweak that begins to help you take control of your phone's relationship with you and also does a better job of reflecting the way in which most of us actually live or live and organize our social lives. Um, we are. We're, I'm going to jump in here because we need sure. to go to a break. And when we come back, I want to continue this conversation because it is dazzling me. And I'm sure it's dazzling <laughs> our listeners at, as well. You're listening to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. And my guest today is Alex Sujung Kim Pong. And the website is Contemplative computing.org and the book I want to give the plug is The Distraction Addiction we're going to break, here come those tunes and when we come back we'll carry on the conversation about broadening the ideas of addiction We know that life is tough and that happiness can and does live along with adversity. We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen on toginet.com like us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and on Twitter at HH Talk Radio. Lisa returns with more of Harvesting Happiness following this short break. Do you like Lisa's take on happiness, well-being, and human flourishing? Join us this spring as Harvesting Happiness launches online classroom programming where Lisa Cypress Kamen will offer her workshop series across the globe and from the comfort of wherever you are. Visit HarvestingHappiness.com for more details. Be a part of the grateful good. 
Grateful Nation brings together patients, families, friends, and staff of Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center to support the quality care and groundbreaking research at the Medical Center. Through new and traditional media, members of Grateful Nation share experiences, thank our caregivers and researchers, participate in sweepstakes, and gather to sponsor and host events and much more. Being grateful inspires others to be grateful as well. Isn't it time we jumpstart some perpetual gratitude? Visit Grateful Nation online to find out more at www.gratefulnation.org. Have a grateful day. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen on Toginet, the show dedicated to promoting happiness because happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. So let's get back to it. It's Harvesting Happiness on Toginet.com. And now back to your host, Lisa Cypress Kamen. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download this podcast on iTunes. Why? Because it's free, it's kind, it's legal, it's available 24-7, and we are exploring ideas of addiction. And if you are just joining us now, we are talking about the addict that exists in most of us in Western society, and that is um, the drug that's called your cell phone or your tablet or your electronic displays that we can't seem to get enough of and, and, and find very hard to put away. And my guest today is Alex Sujung Kim Pong, and he's written a book called The Distraction Addiction. So Alex, we're talking about our addiction to technology, our addiction to our devices, and how we can learn to manage ourselves better anyways. Yeah, and you know, I think that it's... It, Important to rel- to to recognize that um, you know living without technology is actually something that um, human beings have never done. You know we have li- we have co-evolved with um, you know, technologies for the last couple million years, and at its best, the relationships that we can have with them are incredibly deep and profound, and can make us better people. You know, think of you know sort of everything from the experience of uh, the freedom of riding on a bike when you're a kid to um, the things that you're able to express when you're playing a musical instrument or painting or writing. You know, these are all examples of relationships that we have with technologies that stretch us, that challenge us, that make us or of more human rather than less. And so I think that the it is possible to have that same kind of expansive broadening relationship with information technologies um, rather than ones that end up, you know, making us or essentially kind of shadows of our, you know, of our of our better selves. And I think that's the challenge we face now. And you talk about how our our brain chemistry is changed by um, social media by using our our popular devices, and mm-hmm. you know it's the, the 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 dopamine kick that we get. What else happens to our brain when when well, when we're on our devices? You know, as neuroscientists say, um, dopamine is literally the only thing you enjoy in life. So um, <laughs> you know, it is sort of it's you know it's its power is not to be underestimated. But I think it's important to recognize that while we have a really good explanation for the role that sort of you know, brain chemicals like dopamine or oxytocin sort of play in generating pleasure, we don't want to sort of reduce everything in life to just dopamine hits. Um, for one thing, there's an awful lot of stuff that goes on in our minds or in our brains that we don't yet understand. We don't have, for example, a really good neurochemical explanation for um, altruism or courage or self-sacrifice, even though it's very clear that humans are able to exhibit those uh, those behaviors. Um, and so I think it's, you know, f- while it is sort of good to understand of where this addiction comes from, um, it's also important to recognize that you know our brains do not reduce just down to dopamine-seeking chemicals. It's also, I think, important to take note of the way that information technologies, especially smartphones, don't just 
of connect with our brains, but with our bodies as well. A really nice example of this is the phenomenon of phantom cell phone syndrome, where have you ever had that feeling that your phone was, was, was vibrating in your pocket, but it wasn't there, or it, wa- you know, or it actually wasn't ringing? And I'm embarrassed to admit yes. <laughs> well, you are in very good company because two-thirds, three-quarters of people have that feeling at one time or another. And what happens is we, you know, consciously or unconsciously, we become very attuned to of the, the sensation of a new call so that, you know, when we have – so that – or if we become more likely to misinterpret things like you know, a puff of wind or brush of clothing against our skin as our phone vibrating. And you can see – in fact, that people f- for whom missing a phone call is a really big thing, like medical residents you know, who are on call um, or young parents are a lot more likely to have phantom cell phone syndrome than the rest of us. But it's a, you know, and I think that's, uh, that's a nice example of the, of the deep ways that these technologies are able to kind of weave themselves not just into or of our brains, um, but also or of into our or of body, uh, what scientists call our body schemas, our sense of where our bodies begin and begin, where they end, and where the world picks up. Um, so, you know, I th- so we're dealing with a, with a technology that really is pretty powerful. And that's both sort of the bad news in terms of, or of how much they're able to, or of to, uh, to addict us, but also it's the good news in that once we learn how to deal with that, um, we're able to do some really good things with it and really good things with ourselves. How do designers and um, these companies, the, the digital companies, capture our attention? What is it, what is it that they're doing? Yeah, that's a really good question because, you know um, – they are – I think that they're what, – what game companies, social media companies, and especially you know, or actually companies that design gambling machines have figured out over the last 20 or so years is that there are certain things you can do that reinforce pleasure, that keep people playing, that keep people interested in sort of in games or spending money. Um, and so – and they tend to do this by – um, setting defaults. So, for example, Netflix, which I love, you know, I, I watch plenty of stuff on Netflix, has this beautifully evil design tweak where if you were ro- watching, let's say, 30 Rock or Parks and Rec, you finish an episode and it automatically cues up the next episode to begin in 10 seconds. Now, 10 seconds is just enough time for you to rationalize and say, yeah, you know, I can watch one more and then I'll, you know, go to the gym later and work out twice as hard. Um, and so, but by setting the default to keep playing, Netflix engages you for longer um, and makes it more likely for you to, you know, to, to, to continue your subscription. Um, they've also, I think that um, social media companies and gambling and gambling and gaming companies have also become really good at manipulating what they call intermittent reinforcement. So, you know, if you were to, you know, if people were to like every single post that you put on Facebook or Twitter, it actually would get kind of boring. And so by, and the, the, uh, what reinforcement, what intermittent reinforcement teach uh, sort of uh, uh, the way that that works is that the occasional reinforcement is the one that is sort of more interesting and more stimulating and so with um with uh, with social media companies the fact that not everybody likes everything is sort of encourages us to post more to try and figure out what it is that our friends like friends maybe in quotation marks and to or you know, to keep putting up stuff until we get you know until we figure out or what our audience really wants with gambling with things like video poker machines the latest generation of them actually have cameras that watch you play and they do 
two things. One of them is the facial recognition is good enough now so that if you're a criminal, if you've been banned from a casino and they've got your picture, they can identify you and throw you out. But the other thing that they do is watch your mood. And they see, okay, if you're starting to get bored, you win the next game. Um, you, know, you, <laughs> you hit just enough of a jackpot to keep you interested. And so the game is actually able to adapt itself dynamically to your level of interest and to figure out, okay, how much of a payout do I need to give so that you know I may give up 10 bucks, but it'll make it more likely that the player will bet 50 the next time. And so by doing this, you know, by, tweet, by being able to tweak the intermittent reward in real time, video poker machines and video slot machines are now able to keep people occupied for you know, literally hours and hours who otherwise would have just uh, played a few rounds and then given up and you know, gone to the show or hit the buffet. That is both brilliant and scary at the same it time. Is. Absolutely. Oh, my goodness. We need to move on because we actually are running out of time. I want to talk about um, the concept of digital detox because yes. I, think, I think it's brilliant. It's something that I actually do or I think I'm doing it every summer when I go on a ra- rafting trip and everybody surrenders their electronics and we just have each other for several days. Actually, that's cold turkey. Do, does it work? And how long do you have to go on them to see benefits? Mm-hmm. Um, it, um, yes, it works if you do a few things. I mean, I think one of them is um, having something else that that's, uh, to occupy your time is really, really important. So, you know, rafting is a terrific example. Um, another is you have to th- – that um, people who do it regularly, like every weekend or so, say that it takes – two or three sessions before you really begin to see benefits. So you need a measure of perseverance. The other thing I think is that you need to think of it in, not in terms of, you know, kind of self-denial, but rather that, you know, what you're do, what the people who, su- who succeed at it find is that it gives them not just an opportunity to reconnect with other people, but also to um, rediscover a slower, more leisurely sense of time and, and to kind of allow their brains to shift into um, sometimes a quieter, more reflective, more leisurely sort of pace that actually is the way that we used to live up until about 30 years ago. And so, you know, I think that, but, you know, I think that thinking of it, the people who do it most, most successfully end up thinking about it, not just in terms of, you know, getting away from technology, not just giving up stuff, but getting something back that is really valuable and learning how to live, you know, and learning how to live a ritual life, not just learning how to live, you know, not just being in real life. The book is The Distraction Addiction by Alex Sujung Kim Pong, and his website is contemplativecomputing.org. On Twitter, he is at AskPong, P-A-N-G, and on Facebook, Alex S.K. Pong. And here are a few thoughts before we part. Happiness is not a destination. It cannot be bought, sold, or traded. Happiness will never invite you to the party. Happiness simply comes down to a choice to show up each and every day in the world with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guests today, Noah Levine and Alex Sujung Kim Pong, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember... Happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. And thanks to our producers who make us look swell each and every week. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Join us every Wednesday morning live at 10 to 11 Central Time here on Toginet Radio. Then harvest your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with free downloadable podcasts available at iTunes. To learn more about Lisa's filmography, felicitation, and philanthropy, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Each week, 
Harvesting Happiness presents engaging trendsetters, exploring our world through science, art, medicine, media, music, philosophy, politics, and the human heart, whose perspectives on life are sure to inspire, provoke, and engage. Lisa's diverse guests are a proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who have devoted their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Like Lisa says, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following us on Twitter at hashtag Harvesting Happiness. Then join us again next week at this same time on the Toginet Radio Network.